Greetings in the Master's name. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to the end of the chapter. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While, he, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now a little bit of word study here. Uh, we've gone over this before uh, in an earlier message, but just uh, pointing out a few more things. In verse 8, it says, Harden not your hearts. Harden. And the... Uh, the idea there in that word is stubbornness, stubbornness. And we have that also in verse 13, uh, if you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 15, harden not your hearts. Stubbornness is the opposite of surrender. We, When we refuse to surrender to God, we or hardened, or stubborn. And then in verse 8, we also have the word provocation. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. And we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, here in a, in a little bit there in Deuteronomy and Numbers where, where it's, the situation is talking about. But the idea of provocation is irritation. And of course, we have the same quote in verse 15. Uh, and I thought, uh, as in the provocation, as an irritation, do we? Do we irritate God? Does God get irritated? <laughs> I don't think so. But, I mean, uh, he gets uh, disappointed, I guess we could say that. But, anyway, it was interesting that that's kind of the the the, uh, the idea of that verse. And then uh, in, in verse 10, it says, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation. And the, and, and the, the word grieve here, again, looking up, I like word study. Uh, and it's the idea, vexed with something irksome. So, again, I thought, does God get irked or vexed? Well, I, I don't suppose he does, but there again, he does get disappointed in us sometimes. It says, uh, I was grieved with that generation. They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Knowing. And, and again, that word knowing, uh, it, it's uh, okay when we know God. You know, some, sometimes in the scripture, the word knowing uh, in the original, it's a very intimate relationship. Uh, but here, it, it, it's a, a, a close, thorough relationship. Do we know God closely? Do we know God thoroughly? Now, I was thinking of the word completely, and we can't know God completely because we're finite and he's infinite. But how, how intimate, how close, how thorough is our knowledge of God? It said they erred because they didn't know him. They didn't know his ways, it says. And then verse 12, take heed lest there be an end of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing, departing. And the, and the idea there is revolt or desert. You can revolt, revolting against something or, you know, in, in the national scene, people desert. Sometimes talk about deserters. So this is the idea of revolting against God or deserting God. Uh, so it says, be careful let in your, lest in your heart you revolt or desert God. And then in verse 16, we have the word provoke again. Uh, and there, the, it's a little different form. It's a, it's a similar word to provocation. Just like in English, we have different forms of a word. We have the noun form, the adjective form, the verb form, 
sometimes adverb form and all that. So we have, you have these similar words, but here the word provoke is for the idea of exasperate. So they, there again, can God get exasperated? So no, I don't think so, but anyway. Uh, and then, uh, and, and then we want to, looking at verse 18, and we've looked at these words before, but I want to just review it again. It says, to them that believed not. The Revised Standard Version, the, the, the Greek word, that Greek word, it says believe not. It's always translated disobedience in the Revised Standard Version. And we have that... Um, and then in, in verse 19, we have the word unbelief. So it seems like they're the same, but they're not. The one in 18 is disobedience. And the one in 9... No, wait a minute, I'm sorry. The one in 18 is... is um, let me just look here. I think I got this straight. Uh, yeah, the, the, the one in verse 18, believe not, is, is disobedience. And the one unbelief in verse 19 is, um, is, is always, that one's always translated unbelief, and it means a, a lack of confidence, uh, a lack of trust, a lack of faith. And so we also have it in verse 12 where it says, an evil heart of unbelief, and that one, again, is the idea of, of a lack of faith. And it, it says it's an evil heart, an evil heart. When we don't, when we lack confidence in God, it says it's evil. And I, I, I thought about Hebrews 11, 6, you know, the faith chapter. He that cometh to God must believe, and that's the faith word. Okay, so it says he must believe. So here it says unbelief. So well, yeah, I'll point that out in a minute when we look. I wrote these words up. But, so, uh, yeah, let me go, let me just look at that. So here are these words. Uh, the, uh, the one here, um, this one, this one here, apostia, is the one that means uh, lack of, lack of uh, confidence, uh, distrust. But if you take the A off, the A is the negative in the Greek. And so if you take the A off, it means to believe. It means to have confidence, to have faith in. And so when it says, when it says in Hebrews, he that comes to God must believe, it's the word without the A in front of it. It's, it's the, the positive word. And so, but then, and so here's a couple other forms of that word that's used in different verses. All these, uh, all these are the idea of having uh, either Lack of confidence or without the A, it's having confidence. And then this word down here is the one where it says, believeth not. In Hebrews, um, that's the one in verse uh, 18, they believe not. And that is uh, disobey or refusing to be persuaded. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a deliberate refusal of being obstinate. And so... Uh, and some of the other verses here, maybe we'll just look at a couple other verses. Uh, don't want to take time to do everything. But if you turn to John 3, 36. Now, in John 3, of course, we have uh, the words about uh, in John 3, 16, and so on, he that believeth, and so on. But the last verse in John, in John 3, it says, He that believeth on the Son of everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so, you know, when we read it in English, it seems like it's kind of the same thing, but it's not quite the same thing because uh, it says, he that believeth, that is this word up here, having confidence and trusting. So he that believeth, it's without the, the negative in front of it. And so uh, he, that, he that has confidence in God, he that has faith in God, he that trusts God has everlasting life, but he that believeth not, and that's the word disobedience. The person that believes on the Son has everlasting life, but the first person that's disobedient does not have. And so, see, what's the connection, though? See, the connection is that if we have confidence in God, if we trust God, if we have faith in God, we're going to do what he says. If you have confidence in somebody, you're going to listen to them. You, you, you trust them enough that you're, you're, you're going to base what you do on, 
In other words, you have the confidence to follow through on what they say. And so here in Hebrews, it, it says that, um, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that, that uh, disobeyed. So we see they could not enter in because of a lack of confidence. That's what, that ver that's what those two verses say. And there's one more yet we'll look at, and it's 1 Peter 2.7. 1 Peter 2.7 Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. So there it actually translated it disobedience. The same two words we're talking about, believe and disobedience. Or, well, okay, it's the positive one. It's uh, them which believe he is precious. And so it's those that have confidence in him. But, but unto them which be disobedient and that's the ones that refuse to be persuaded and like I say in RSV it's always translated disobedience so there's a very close connection between and what, what's interesting to me about these two words is in Protestantism in general people say they believe they believe they believe in God in fact just uh, just recently my wife was talking to somebody that was concerned about somebody else, and uh, and I said to her, I said, well, what about not the person they were concerned about, but what about themselves? Oh, oh, they 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 think they're perfectly fine, you know. They were baptized, they were immersed, and you know, and I guess they believe in God, but do they follow what He says? So anyway, thinking about all this and about what Jesus said. I believe in Jesus. Do I believe in him to the extent that I do what he said? And that made me think about this little book. Jesus really said that? That's the title of it. Jesus really said that? And it's five teachings of Jesus that might surprise you. And the setting is actually, it's a fictional setting, but the things it brings out is... is, is uh, what is from the scripture but it's this couple that um, that were going to this church and they were they the church administered to them considerably considering the life they came out of but then they got studying the scriptures more and more and comparing it with what they were being taught or not being taught and so they came up with five questions uh, based on all that and so the five teachings of Jesus that might surprise you now uh, us as Anabaptists looking at it, we would say, oh yeah, we believe that, at least four of them, the fifth one, we might be a little bit wooshy-washy on. Um, but um, anyway, I'll, I'll let you figure out which one that is. Um, but then, uh, okay, I'll just read this now. As Jeremy and Alicia compared the early church to Lakeside Believers Fellowship, they were sobered and alarmed. Both groups claimed Jesus Christ as their Savior, but there was little resemblance after that. And as Jeremy and Alicia reviewed and discussed the questions they, they had written down, they realized that these five questions only scraped the surface. When a man became a believer in the first couple of centuries after Christ, everything about his life needed to change. In contrast, when a man decided to accept Jesus, today little actual change was expected. After standing up some Sunday morning and sharing that he accepted Jesus as his personal Savior, a man would continue living much as he had before except that he came to worship services and maybe joined a Bible study. In fact, if he, like Cyprian in the third century, suddenly sold all his unneeded assets and distributed them to the poor, people would become concerned about his sanity. The bottom line, Alicia, is this. When a man in the early church chose to follow Jesus, everything about that man was transformed. Today, when a man accepts the Lord, very little changes. Setting her coffee down, Alicia looked at Jeremy. Did you notice what you just said? They chose to follow, and we just accept. Those early believers made a conscious and deliberate decision to obey Jesus regardless of the cost. In contrast, we talk of deciding to accept him into our lives. How did we get from following Jesus to just accepting him. I think you're right. 
what we are saying without necessarily realizing it is that Jesus is strong enough to forgive our sins, but he doesn't give us enough power to actually live a daily countercultural lifestyle of obedience to his teachings. Those first Christians believed Jesus was powerful enough to do both. The church in America is familiar with Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and the fact that his blood cleanses us from sin. But that's just part of the story. The Christianity of the Bible was so much greater. They taught that Jesus not only forgives our sins, but grants us power to overcome sin and obey him in our daily lives. Their gospel was powerful enough to transform men. Well, I was going to, I was going to look at the setting, and maybe I'll just go on and skip, uh, skip that, but I'll just review a little bit. The setting of this teaching in Hebrews is uh, about the provocation and so on. So uh, you, when, when, when Moses, Moses was, uh, was uh, reviewing and summarizing things in the book of Deuteronomy, and it says about how when they came out of Egypt and then they had these problems in the wilderness, and, and the people said, oh, God, he hates us. He just brought us out here to kill us. And, and, you know, we read something like that, and we think, how can that be? I mean, they saw all the miracles in Egypt, and God provided the manna, and God provided the quail, and all this, and, I, oh, he just brought us out here to kill us. We say, you know, how could they be so upside down in their thinking? And, and so then you go back and you read in Numbers exactly how it was, you know, and they said, well, God just brought us out here and our children are going to be a prey, you know. He just brought us out here and all our children are going to die in the wilderness. And God said, you saw my miracles. You saw everything I did for you. And this is your take on it. He says, you're all as adults who saw all my glory. And now you're saying this, you're the ones that's going to die in the wilderness and your children that you said is going to be a prey are the ones that's going to go into the promised land. And that's what happened. But what Jesus said, and actually there was something I wanted to point out, but since I'm not reading it, twice it says about Caleb, he wholly followed me. When it's talking about Caleb, he wholly followed me. And this talks about their conclusion was about how nowadays we accept Jesus instead of following him. Do we follow everything that Jesus said? Um, and so, I, you know, I was thinking all these things. And, um, and so here, I'm, I'm trying to read through that, this this year like many of y'all are. And, um, and so I'm just a little bit ahead. I got me a head start because... It's easier to stay ahead than it is to get behind and catch up. And so this is what I read just recently. This was the April 7th reading. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." And then what was really interesting was the next verse. It was the psalm reading that followed the psalm reading. I mean, okay, it's Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Proverbs, the way this is broken up. The next verse, Psalm 78, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. 
it's kind of interesting that that followed the teachings there of Jesus about the birds and the flowers and so on. But following Jesus, you know, different times. Remember the fellow that said, uh, I'll follow you to Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't have a place to lay my head. And another fellow said, I'll follow you, but got to go say goodbye to my family. And I think maybe they're in the context there was maybe take care of his parents in their old age, which is a good thing to do. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Let the dead bury their dead is what he said. So it's pretty, actually, following Jesus is pretty radical. And um, I'll read something here from the book, True Discipleship. This, um, I'd say this probably comes out of the 1950s. It was a letter that a young fellow, idealistic, I guess. He was a letter written by an American college student who had been converted to communism in Mexico. I think at this point, probably in the 40s and 50s, communism was outlawed in Mexico. But he, he saw this as some great cause. The purpose of the letter was to explain to his fiancée why he must break off their engagement. And this is what he said. We communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am in dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. If communists can be as dedicated as this for their cause, how much more should Christians pour themselves out in loving, glad devotion for their glorious Lord? Surely, if the Lord Jesus is worth anything, he is worth everything. Now that seems kind of radical. Maybe this one is a little bit more that we can identify with. This was 1960. A young disciple named R.M. was president of this freshman class in college, Christian school. During his term, it was proposed that expenditures be made for the usual class parties, jackets, and a class gift. Rather than approve such expenditures which did not contribute directly to the furtherance of the gospel, R.M. resigned from his post as president. The following letter was distributed to his classmates on the day his resignation was announced. Dear classmates, since the matters of class parties, jackets, and the class gift have been brought before the cabinet, I, as the president of the class, have been considering the Christian attitude toward these areas. I think we would find the greatest joy for our own selves in giving ourselves, our money, and our time entirely to Christ and for others, thus finding the reality of his words, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. For Christians to spend their money and time on things that do not result in the definite witness to the unbeliever 
or where the building up of his children in him would seem to be inconsistent with the facts that 7,000, this is 1960, that 7,000 people will die daily from starvation and over half the world has never heard of man's only hope. How much more glory we could give to God by helping to spread the gospel to the other 60% of the world who have never heard of Jesus Christ or even in many neighboring homes instead of coming together in little cliques by ourselves limiting our social well-roundedness to those of like mind and wasting money and time for our own pleasure. Since I'm aware of specific needs and opportunities where finances can be used to such great advantage to the glory of Jesus Christ and for helping my neighbor here and abroad, it is impossible for me to allow class funds to be spent unnecessarily on ourselves. If I were one of those who are in so great a need as I know so many to be in, I would want those who have the ability to do all that they could to supply me with the gospel and with my material needs. And as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Therefore, it is with love and prayer that you might see the Lord Jesus giving his all that I hereby submit to you my resignation as president of the class of 63. So I read the April 7 reading there from Luke about God taking care of us. And I thought, what do we want? Well, we want a nice pickup. We want a domicile with a separate room for each of the children. We want the latest model stove and a refrigerator and wash machine. Maybe a cabin in the mountains. Maybe a pad in Florida for the winter. Do we believe Jesus? And then I thought about this book. Somehow my mind went there. A Small Price to Pay, about Mikhail Korov and his life, born in 1931 in Russia. His father and grandfather were both zealous Christians. Father was taken away from home when he was eight. Died less than two years later in prison. Come, children, my mother said every Sunday. This is after his dad's in prison. We will have our time of worship. Mama held Maria. Vera, Nadia, and I sat on stools and watched Mama as she picked up her Bible. Putting her finger at the silk marker, she opened the Bible to Matthew 16, 18. Clearing her throat, she began to read slowly. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We knew what would follow. Children, this means the church. Jesus says that the church will be on this earth and until he comes again. The gates of hell means anyone who is trying to get rid of the Christians but they will never succeed. Jesus has promised this. There will always be Christians. The evil powers can never stop the believers, even though they put them in prison and kill them. Children, what a happy time you are born into. I had a difficult time with this. Papa was in prison. Mama had to work at the hospital every day, leaving us children alone in our flat. We barely had enough to eat, and we were almost always cold. Happy. What did Mama mean? The people took away our papa and closed our house of prayer. The people who took away our papa and closed our house of prayer think they are winning against the believers. But look, Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail. Mama's voice grew triumphant. Dear children, you will see that the church will rise again someday, strong and true and brave. Keep watching for this time. It will come. It was difficult for an eight-year-old boy to understand all that Mama was saying. Yet I remember her words to this day. For every Sunday she turned to Matthew and read the same verse. She believed God. During the months after Papa's arrest, Mama stayed strong. Every morning after she came home from her job on night shift, she woke us up. Come, children. Are you all right? Come. It is time to pray. She shook us gently as we lay on the cot, huddled together for warmth. Are you all right? Come, come. It is morning and we will pray. In later years, she told us that she would often come home fighting the fear that one of us had died during the night. She always woke us right away to make sure we were all right. Shivering in the unheated flat, we would kneel. Come, Maria, you pray first. Tell God, thank you for loving us. 
One by one, she would encourage us and help us to pray. I don't remember what I prayed or what my sisters prayed, but every morning my mother would pray the same thing. Oh, Lord, thank you for loving us so much. When the prayers were over, I could not wait to jump under the blanket again and try to get warm. While we snuggled there, Mama would get something for us to eat. Most of the time, it was a thin gruel made by boiling wheat and water. For loving us so much? Why did Mama say that every morning? I could have understood her prayer of Mama if God had somehow given her bread or something else to bring back for us to eat. How could she thank God for his love when we were so needy? They, uh, they lived in Leningrad, and uh, Leningrad was under siege for a couple years by the German army. The sun felt good on my back. The long, cold winter had finally ended. Though we were glad for the warmer weather, we still had no food. Leningrad was under siege. For months now, the German army had surrounded us. Food was getting more and more scarce. I watched the waves of the canal lap against the concrete barriers. The sunlight caught in the waves and reflected silver bars across the water. Hey, Sonny. I jerked my head around to see where the voice was coming from. Up here. Two ships were docked against the side of the canal. From the upper deck of one, a man dressed in white clothes was waving at me. Are you looking for something to eat? Are you hungry? As if drawn by a magnet, I walked toward him until I was directly opposite his ship. All I could do was nod my head. Wait a minute. He disappeared for a moment, then he emerged holding three pieces of bread in his hands. With a nimble leap, he jumped down onto the sidewalk where I was waiting. Take this. His eyes twinkled at me as he smiled. You look hungry. I grabbed the bread and stuffed it under my jacket. Why don't you eat it? The sailor asked. Aren't you hungry? I nodded my head and answered. Yes, I am very hungry, but I have three sisters and a mother at home who are just as hungry. We will share the bread. The sailor looked at me. His eyes rested on my face, then moved down to my clothes, old and threadbare. He shook his head when he saw my shoes. The soles were beginning to come off the leather uppers. Papa was no longer at home to fix shoes, and Mama did not have time. Wait here. With another leap, he was back on the ship. When he reappeared, he had a metal pot in his arms and a whole loaf of bread. Take this, too. I looked into the pot. Pea soup. I felt the inside of my mouth grow wet with anticipation. The sailor watched my face and smiled a little. Thank you, I remember to say. The man swallowed and nodded. Tucking the loaf of bread under my arm, I turned to leave, carefully carrying the pot. Then quickly, cautiously, I went toward home. Misha, exclaimed Naughty as I pushed the door open. Curious, she came to meet me as I walked inside. What is that? What do you have? Soup and bread was all I managed to say. I could barely talk. With shaking hands, I placed the soup on the table. Just the walk from the boat star house had exhausted me. Though I was 10 years old, the lack of nourishing food had made me weak. Soup, bread. My three sisters crowded around the table, staring at our riches. Oh, Misha, where did you get it? As soon as I got my breath back, I told them, then I showed them the pieces of bread that I had hidden under my jacket. We will divide the bread among us now, Vera said, taking charge. When Mama comes home tomorrow morning, she can decide how much soup we may eat. Even though I longed to taste the soup immediately, I knew Vera was right. Necessity had taught us that we must carefully hoard any food we had to make it last as long as possible. Too often we had gone several days with hardly any food. Finally, I took a bite of that bread. Wholesome and made with good flour, it tasted delicious. The crust was nice and brown. I took small bites, drawing out the treat. We didn't pray, Nadia reminded us. Immediately, we put our pieces of bread back on the table and stood to pray. Usually, we closed our eyes to pray. However, we were so hungry that all of us kept our eyes open during that prayer. We did not want the bread to disappear in front of our eyes. Wake up, children, wake up. Mama shook our shoulders the next morning. It is time for our morning prayers. Obediently, we arose. Then we remembered our exciting news. Oh, Mama, Nadia said eagerly. Misha brought home food home yesterday. Bread and pea soup, Maria said, her eyes still blinking from sleep but shining with the good news. The Lord truly is good to us, Mama exclaimed, her eyes showing with gladness. How did you get the food? I told her the simple story. 
We will thank God for looking after us. See, children, God does love us very much to send the food to us. I will warm up the soup for our breakfast. Yes, won't that be wonderful? Mama's smile was warm, but I could not help noticing how thin her cheeks had become. Weariness showed all around her eyes. Let us kneel, Mama went on, just as Papa prayed before he was taken. God is looking after his family. I think Papa in heaven is looking down on us and seeing how God has provided. We knelt in prayer. Again, Mama thanked God for loving us so much. She thanked the Lord. She asked the Lord to continue to look after us during this time of war and famine. This time, I could feel God's love. He had provided something real, something I could see and taste. I, too, thank God for loving us. Maybe a little bit more yet. Uh, they um, almost, in some miraculous ways, they were able to get out of Leningrad during the siege and went to a more southern part of Russia. And, of course, there was, it's even probably worse than what it is in Ukraine now, but people, just lots of people wandering all over the place, just homeless and looking for food and shelter. And that's, that's the way they were. Um, and so they got the, this place uh, that somebody told them about, and they had sort of a letter of introduction. It was an orphanage. And so the director of the orphanage, um, I watched her face as she read the letter Mama gave her. Then she pressed the letter to her breast. Yes, yes, the girls will all be able to stay right here. You have their birth certificates. You have their birth certificates, Mama nodded. And you, ma'am, she said to Mama, can work here in the kit laundry. We will find a little room where you can sleep. Mama handed our birth certificates to the woman. Ah, here I see you have a boy, Mikhail. Yes. She seemed to notice me for the first time, then returned her attention to the papers on her desk. Mama looked at me, then back at the woman. Hmm. The lady looked at me again. Suddenly her face brightened. I know. She looked relieved. There's a boy's orphanage just down the street from here. Your Misha will go there and be taken care of. I know they are full, but I know the director and he'll accommodate one more. She began writing again, all bricksness. No, Mama said slowly, yet firmly, no. The lady looked up in surprise. But we can't take in your Mikhail here. This is a girl's orphanage. The children and I must be together, Mama said firmly. In spite of her weariness, I could hear the passion in my mother's voice. The woman's forehead wrinkled. But then you can't have a place to stay here. Where will you go? I don't know. Somehow God will provide, Mama said softly. We must stay together. Listen, I will arrange for you to see your son every day. You will not really be separated. You must think about the welfare of your family. I really do want to help you, not only because Petro recommended you, but because I see you are in need. The words began tumbling out again. What would you have done? Mama calmly got up from her chair. I thank you for your desire to help, but my family must stay together. We are all that is left since our papa has gone to heaven. Mother would not change her mind. We walked out the door. Later, when I was an adult, I asked my mother, why do you not accept the woman's proposal and let her help us? Life would have been so much easier for all of us if we could have stayed. She even offered to let us be together once a day. Mama reached out her hand and gently stroked my arm. Oh, Misha, I could not do it. I felt strongly that if I wanted to bring all of you children up to know God, I must keep everyone together. I knew then, and even more today, how important it is for a family to pray together, to share together. And I knew if you were separated as children, you would not know the sweetness that family life can bring. No, though it was a difficult time, it would have been much more difficult to bear if even one of you children had not grown up to believe in God. Oh, Mama, after all the years that had passed, I finally understood her decision. You were right. In spite of all the years of wandering, not knowing where we would sleep or what we would eat, we always had each other. No one could have had a richer childhood. Thank you, Mama, for keeping us together. That mother... She believed the things that God said.
And she made her decisions accordingly. Uh, just a little bit more. So for months at a time, we wandered from place to place. Once when we were in Kurgazia, it was quite cold. Let me see if we can find a place to sleep inside, Mama decided, looking around at the houses on the street. Straightening her shoulders, she told us to wait at the gate, leading into a yard where, while she went up the path to the house. Please, would you let us stay inside your house for tonight? It is so cold, and my children and I would appreciate it if we could just have some kind of shelter. Mama was talking fast through the closed door. How many? We could hear the voice from inside. I have four children, Mama said hopefully. I have no room for such a big family, the voice said firmly. Mama turned and joined us. We crossed the street and trudged a little farther up the road to an intersection. Without a word, Mama spread her only blanket on the ground next to a wooden fence outside someone's yard. We all huddled together trying to stay warm. Children, let us pray to our loving Father. It was a usual custom. Again, I don't remember what I or my sisters prayed, but Mama's prayer was still the same strong prayer. Lord, how much you love us. How I feel your love for our little family right here. Help us to be faithful and keep on loving you. In my boyish mind, I again wondered, how can Mother pray like that? If that woman would have let us stay inside, then I could see the love of God. But Mama thanks God for his great love to us. She does not even ask God to make a place for us to stay inside somewhere. I know God loves us, but very much, I don't understand. I shivered as a cold gust of wind blew over our huddled bodies. I hoped the temperature would not fall much below freezing tonight. At least here in southern Russia, it was not as bitterly cold as in Leningrad. Put your head on my lap, Maria, Mama said gently. She closed her own eyes and leaned against the boards behind her back. I watched listlessly as two dogs trotted down the road stopping only briefly to sniff at us before they went on. Several people hurried past us, hardly glancing our way. Hey! A woman's voice called from across the street. We all looked to see who was calling. Maria sat up. Come here! The woman from the house we just left was at her gate, calling and waving to us. We did not move immediately. Was she really calling to us? Woman, bring your children! Yes, clearly she meant us. Come inside. We hastily stood up and crossed the street. Come, I've made a place for you on the floor by the stove. Come along. She reached out her hand and pulled Maria toward her house. Gladly we followed her through the entrance and into her warm house. See, I put blankets here on the floor for you. I hope the wooden floor will not be too hard for you, but I do not have enough beds for so many. Oh, God bless you, Mama said gratefully. The floor will be just fine. Oh, thank you for the blankets. Truly, God is good. The woman went to the kitchen and came back with a loaf of bread. Here, you must be hungry. It is much too cold to be outside on a night like this. We children eyed the bread hungrily. Shelter and food. After you asked for a place for the night and I turned away, I turned you away, I went back to my own bed. I lay there, but I could not go to sleep. Something kept telling me that I must invite you in. May the Lord bless you for your kindness, Mama said. Before we lay down for the night, Mama again prayed. Once more, the familiar words flowed from her heart. Lord, we thank you that you love us so very much. Help us never to forget your love. This time, I could echo her words. I, too, thank God not only for loving us, but for loving us very much. This time I could better understand the very much we had a warm place to sleep. And then it says how they continued to wander around. For several months we lived in Kurgazia with an elderly woman we called Auntie Natasha. I do not remember how it happened that we got to stay there, stay with her, but I remember something had happened one night while we were there, and that's to be continued. Uh, just a little bit more. Just yesterday, I, my reading in here, I read this. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you ever go to somebody's house for a meal for the second or third time and you say, oh, we need to have you. We've been here two or three times and haven't been to our house yet. When have we ever done this? Do we follow Jesus? Do we believe Jesus? Do we believe what he said? Now, some years back, there was an article in the paper over Christmas time about Bill Neff. You know, with the mansion on the hill out there going north on 81, uh, got developed most of the land east of 81. The only thing used to be east of 81 was Dun and Bush, and that factory was taken down. Burgess, Burgess, uh, well, that shopping center there were. But anyway, he developed a lot of that land. But he would put on this huge, grandiose meal for the for all the down-and-outers at Christmas time. And that was a good thing. Oh, I, I, I need to read. There was a wedding yesterday. I need to read this one yet. Um, uh, there's a serious part to it, but I won't, I won't have time for that today. But, um, okay, so this fellow we're talking about, he became a Christian when he was 17, and I don't have time to read that either, but I, uh, Lord willing, sometime we'll finish the story. But, uh, and so he, he started traveling around Russia, uh, uh, and he was inst instrumental in starting the underground church, what they call the underground church, the one separated from the official Baptist church. But uh, he really didn't th give too much thought to being married because of, of his duties and so on. But he did start to notice this young lady uh, in the youth group. And so the first time I became aware of my feelings for Vera was at the youth conference in her hometown in Moldavia, it says here, actually, it's interesting, Moldavia. And I remember saying to the young lady that works at Christian Light, I said something about Moldavia, and she said, Moldova. And uh, so I, I checked, which is which? Well, in the early, in the, in the 90s, 1990s, for a little while, it was called Moldavia when it was part of the Soviet Union. But then when it became independent, they used Moldova. That's the Romanian. And so anyway, here in the book, it says Moldavia. I surprised myself by searching for her friendly face in the large crowd of youth. When I did not see her, I inquired after her and was told she was somewhere getting more qualifications for a degree in medicine. Now, a year later, here she was in my hometown of Leningrad. Though I had been focusing on the daily meetings, I was not unaware of Vera's presence. Today was the final day of her visit, and I had offered to accompany her to the airport. Have you ever visited the Hermitage? I asked her now. No, but I've heard much about it, she answered as we passed over one of Leningrad's many canals. We both looked at the facades of the buildings lining the water. Leningrad had been well designed, and art lovers and architectural enthusiasts from all over the world came to see our beautiful city. Would you like to go today, I asked, trying to hide my eagerness. We have plenty of time before your flight leaves. Looking up at me, she said, I would enjoy that. It's right on our way, isn't it? I drew in my breath slowly. I was pleased at her willingness to accept my plan. Oh, by the way, Vera, I want to invite you to my wedding, I said, trying to speak in a normal voice. Mikhail, you did not tell me you were getting married. When is it? I smiled at her. I don't know. A small frown wrinkled her forehead. Then she laughed. You don't know. It is not very soon then? I wet my lips. Vera? I want to invite you to my wedding as my bride. I heard Vera gasp. Her eyes flickered to my face and then dropped again. Oh, she spoke in a small voice. Please do not be in a hurry to decide. I know this is very sudden, but I do care for you and would be very happy if you would consent. And so on. He says he told her how his future is so uncertain and so on, but she said she would pray about it. And they did get married. I'm thinking about war. There's war in Ukraine. We're in spiritual warfare. And I don't want to be sensational, but the warfare that we're engaged in is more serious yet than the war in Ukraine. And if you read the news, they talk about uh, the cyber warfare that's going on behind the scenes, all the stuff's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about and so on. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in our warfare, too. 
and how serious is his warfare to us. And we each, we each have our place in God's kingdom. We don't all have to be doing the same thing. But how serious are we about this warfare? I think about, and I mentioned this before, I think about Mark being out here most of the wintertime on Saturdays by himself. Where's the rest of us? When the bus goes to D.C., why is it so much trouble to get the 45 people to go to D.C.? And we could go on and on. Are we serious about the warfare we're in? Jesus said that a person who follows him must renounce all that he has. That's what Jesus said. And this warfare, I mentioned this, I'm going to lay it out here on the table so you can take a closer look at it. This world, Tozer, uh, this world, playground or battleground, perfect cover. It's some Civil War battleground. And the children are playing among the cannons when, with their balloons. And that pretty well pictures us. I'll close with a poem. I had walked life's path with an easy tread and followed where comfort and pleasure led and land by chance in a quiet place. I met my master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for a goal, much thought for the body but none for the soul, I had entered to win in life's mad race when I met my master face to face. I had built my castles and reared them high till the tires had pierced the blue of the sky. I had sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met my master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes full of sorrow were fixed on me. And I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away. Melted and vanished and in their place I saw naught else but my master's face. And I cried aloud, O oh, make me meet to follow the marks of thy wounded feet. My thought is now for the souls of men I've lost my life to find it again. Ever since alone in that holy place, my master and I stood face to face.